Hello, it's Friday 28th of October. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bauman and I will be rounding up October's top travel stories from across the region. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So we're back after a busy travel conference week in Singapore. October seems to have vanished before our eyes, hasn't it, Hannah? We've already completed 10 months of 2022. And October was another busy period with new travel policies, new announcements, and new developments. On today's show, we'll discuss the top talking points from recent months, taking us from Singapore, Thailand, and Bali in Indonesia, to Cambodia, Malaysia, and Vietnam. So we've got plenty to pack in, Hannah. Where should we start? Well, let's go for Singapore first. Um, and this is the news um, this week that a new Singapore hotel transformation roadmap has been launched. Um, do you want to fill us in on that, Gary? Yeah, this is quite an interesting development, actually. Earlier in the year, back in March, Singapore Tourism Board and the Singapore Hotels Association in in um, partnership with the government, launched what was called the Hotel Sustainability Roadmap. And this was quite interesting. This was quite a novel move where actually uh, hotels across the country have been tasked with hitting sustainable targets and they're quite high. But the government is actually helping them, is going to invest uh, along with them if they do things like, you know, uh, use renewable energies or, or have energy and waste management systems that they need to buy. And the government is playing, is providing grant funding for that. So that happened back in March. And now, They've launched what's called the Hotel Industry Transformation Map, which goes a, little, which goes a few steps further now. It, it retains sustainability at the core, but it also looks at other areas for how the hotel industry is going to transform, is going to have to transform to meet changing patterns of leisure, business, mice demand over the coming years. And it's, it's quite an interesting document. It's got loads of different um, areas of, of focus and, and areas of investment where hotels are going to have to look at. It's also going to look at how Singapore will replenish and update its hotel stock over the coming years. So it's, it's a pretty broad ranging plan. But I would say of all the countries I've seen looking at this, this kind of approach, uh, it's probably the most targeted and probably the most integrated that I've seen. And you know, you'd probably expect that from Singapore, I guess. Anna. Yeah, I was just about to say that, isn't it? What, what else would we expect from Singapore? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I also found it very interesting. You know, they've got this big focus on upskilling hotel workers. Of, of course, I think that that is a great thing. But you also need, uh, I guess, my, my thought, my initial thought anyway, and, you know, I'm willing to be wrong, is perhaps not everybody always needs to be upskilled, right? You, you do need people who can just do the housekeeping or who can do, do the, the washing of the dishes in the kitchen. I, I think, you know, not everything has to be um, upskilled. But definitely, there you can see that there is this drive of trying to keep people within the industry. And of course, you know, that's one of the key challenges that we're facing as we're coming out from the pandemic um, is really how do you then make the, the tourism industry, the hotel industry, an attractive one to stay in? Um, and certainly, you know, upskilling staff and showing some kind of career path is one way to do that. Yeah, it is. And I think the other one is is a responsibility to the, to the environment. And that is right at the core of what they're trying to do here. I, I didn't realize that they've actually set a target that 60%, 60% of hotel room stock in Singapore must achieve an internationally recognized hotel sustainability certification from an, an international body by 2025, which is quite soon. That's only three years away. So 
know, they're, they're moving quite quickly on this. It's quite interesting. I stayed at the Park Royal Collection in Marina Bay while I was there last week. Uh, and they've introduced, um, I think it's over 200 solar panels on their roof. And those solar panels power now all of their, their lifts. They have 13 lifts in the hotel. They, they told me they would actually like to have more solar panels, but they just don't have roof space. But again, the government actually helped them invest in that, which I think is quite an interesting thing that the, you know, the private sector and the public sector are working together on sustainability in hotels, something we really need in every country, I think, going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess the advantage that Singapore has is just its small size, right? There's only a limited number of hotels and um, in that way, it's easy. I can imagine if Thailand <laughs> would look at doing that and think of the, the tens of thousands or possibly even hundreds of thousands of hotels that they have in Thailand, it would be a, a different beast altogether. Um, but certainly, you know, a country has to start leading this in Southeast Asia. And, you know, we, we always say Singapore tends to be a bit of a trendsetter. People are always looking at what they're doing. Um, and, and hopefully this will inspire other governments around the region to try and take similar action. Yeah, I think that's the point. I, I think it is about the government actually being involved and taking action rather than just setting, um, you know, standards or regulations, actually being prepared to invest to to support the industry because it's, it's going to be a massive transformation. It's going to cost a lot of money and it's going to take a lot of time. Um, but as you said, you know, the part of the buy-in, I think, for younger generations to be a part of the, the industry in future will be how it treats the environment, how it treats communities around it. So, there's a there's a business element to this as well as a, as a sustainability element absolutely so let's move on then to our next pick for october um and this is um indonesia and this new visa people are calling it in the media a hundred and thirty thousand dollar visa which is aimed at attracting wealthy foreigners uh phyllis yeah so it's the hundred and thirty thousand us dollar visa or if you equate that to Indonesian rupiah, 2 billion Indonesian rupiah. That's the, the amount that anybody applying for this new residency visa must put into a bank account in, in Indonesia um, before they actually move in. The visa would allow them to stay for five or 10 years as a second home. It's very similar to, I guess you'd say, Malaysia, my second home visa, which has been running for, for several years here. But this is specifically um, looking at how they can attract wealthy individuals to Bali. Now, there are two elements that I thought were quite interesting about this, Hannah. One, it's another investment visa. I guess that's not particularly interesting. We've been hearing a lot from Indonesia over recent months about a digital nomad visa. Now, this certainly isn't that. But it's also been couched as though this is a way to boost tourism, which I, I don't quite understand. This is a residency visa. But what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, we were just dis discussing this um, just before we started recording. It's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, in theory, of course, it, this, this kind of visa trying to bring in these these very high uh, net worth individuals is going to boost the local economy. You know, these people are going to probably buy property. Maybe they'll send their, their children to local international schools. You know, they'll, they'll be buying groceries. They'll be, you know, contributing to the local economy. Will they be going to... Uh, you know, stay in hotels every weekend, uh, visiting tourist attractions constantly and, you know, using local transportation services to get there? Probably not. I mean, of course, that there will be some element of tourism, but I think it would be, yeah, it would be a bit of a stretch of the imagination, I think, to um, to believe that by themselves, these individuals, and I presume it would be pretty limited as well, it's, it's quite a high bar for people to meet, so... Let's say even you've got a thousand of these people um, in the country, 
how much of an impact can those 1,000 people really make on the tourism industry? Um, pretty limited, right, I think. Yeah, that's a good point. You also mentioned um, that this actually reflects what is a transforming economic landscape around the region after COVID. And there are other countries doing similar things, aren't they? So there's an element of competition going on at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got Malaysia's MM2H, which changed its its regulations to also be a bit stricter, but they've also launched this premium visa program for investor residents. Thailand has launched its own um, scheme to allow foreign residents to own residential land. Um, and Cambodia has also launched its own um, version of this too. So certainly there, there's a really hot competition in the region for these kind of long stay, high value residents. Yeah, absolutely. One to watch. There, as you said, there's there's competition that's, that's probably going to roll into 2023. We'll probably see more iterations as we go forward. Hannah, let's move next to Thailand and Thailand's connection with Malaysia. Tell us more. Yeah, so Thailand's an interesting one. And they have had a million thanks to the Malaysians, um, they have said. So essentially, Malaysia is now the number one visitor source market to Thailand so far this year, and they have contributed over 1 million arrivals from January to middle of October. Now, what's kind of interesting about that is that 70% of these Malaysians travel to Thailand by land. They said either by bus, train, car, or motorbike, and just 30% travel by air. So for me, um, it's kind of interesting because, you know, if, if we think back to last year, and ASEAN Travel Corridor, and I'll bang on about this again. Um, well, ASEAN Travel Corridor, but just, or even just in general, Thailand's, Thailand's thinking about what tourists they wanted. You know, the focus was on long haul. People really wanted long haul travelers. And there was this idea of the ASEAN Travel Corridor that never really came off. But one million Malaysians into Thailand over the land border, doesn't that signal to you that really they should have just opened up the land borders last year already um, and to have supported the tourism industries in both countries? The same, um, hopping a little bit across Singapore and Malaysia, the land border traffic there is is reaching pre-pandemic levels at peak periods. These stories are great. It's great to see this intra-ASEAN travel, but I always just feel like there was this massive missed opportunity um, that ASEAN should have reopened to one another's countries last year, and they just didn't do it. And the tourism industry is still suffering as a result. Yeah, 100%. I agree with those. Those, those are good points, Hannah. I think there, there are two points that I think are quite interesting. So, so Thailand is saying that this year it, it's hoping for another one of its targets, 1.8 million arrivals from Malaysia, which would make it its number one market for the whole year. That, that I think, is fascinating. Like you said, that this sort of traveling close to home, but not at home. So just going across the border for your holidays. So I think that's quite interesting. The part I think that's also very interesting for Malaysia is just how it's leaking its own tourists. You know, the problem we've seen in, in destinations like Langkawi is the prices have just been jacked so high that it's just more valuable. There's, there's more value for Malaysian travelers to go across the border into Thailand. And I think you're, you're turning away domestic travelers. And whereas, you know, there was this strong governmental claims that they were going to stimulate and, and make sure that domestic tourism became as important in this new era as it was during the pandemic. But, it, you know, the evidence shows that that's not actually proving true. Uh, and you're just leaking tourists. And I think, you know, Malaysia would probably have to look at that quite closely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so speaking of domestic tourism, let's stick with um, Thailand. And, you know, we were saying Malaysia, one of these issues that they're perhaps not supporting domestic tourism as much as they should be. Thailand is still 
running, they are drafting its fifth phase of the We Travel Together um, domestic tourism subsidy scheme. Um, now, when it comes to domestic tourism in Thailand, it's a little bit disappointing. Um, I, I think that the TAT are kind of disappointed with domestic travel results in 2022. So again, there's perhaps this element of travelers going across the borders. You know, TAT have been blaming it on flooding, especially this this last quarter. And we, we've seen that becoming a major issue for other countries like Vietnam, who's had record flooding in, in Da Nang. And in, in terms of, you know, numbers, they, um, from January to September, have had 103 million domestic travelers. But they are actually targeting more than that. So October, they thought should have reached a pre-pandemic number of 17.3 million trips, but it only reached 14 million. The spend is lower too. So they were aiming for an average spend per trip of 4,000 Thai baht. Right now, domestic travelers are only spending about 2,800 Thai baht. So that's quite a big, right? That's, that's, that's quite a big difference lower. So they're kind of struggling. So in that way, you know, I mean, TAT say they're optimistic that the year and holidays are they're, they're going to achieve 160 million trips. Um, but as we know, TAT are always um, pretty optimistic. But yeah, they they are they are putting their money where their mouth is and looking at reintroducing fifth phase. We travel together scheme, but they're going to change it up a little bit. Before uh, there was also a subsidy on flights with all of the previous iterations of this scheme. This time, the airfare subsidies are going to be discontinued because they saw in the fourth phase that there were still airfares and that were not redeemed. The Tortiel Thai, which is the uh, domestic travel stimulus package that was aimed at supporting travel agents, that's going to be discontinued. That was really, it, it didn't see much popularity at all. It really struggled. And so they're taking that budget back. But interesting, right? The TAT are still realizing, they are still saying, yes, domestic travel is going to be super important to be able to support the tourism industry in Thailand. Yeah, it really is. Interesting statistics there, Hannah. I hadn't seen some of those. The interesting thing about 2022, in many ways, it's a compressed year because borders didn't really open fully until, what, April, May. So the travel season has been compressed into three quarters of the year, and that means that trends are slightly different than they would be in a, in a full year. I guess next year in 2023, I mean, we have all the economic headwinds and those things as well. We, might, we will probably have a, a 12-month run where you'll be able to analyze trends a little bit more in isolation from just the, the first part of this year, which was very, very difficult. As we've been saying for, what, three years now, domestic tourism isn't going to go away. It's still going to be an incredibly important part, particularly um, in, in countries or in regions where people are still a little bit fearful of traveling internationally, where they may not have the same economic spending powers they had before and just actually want to travel more in their own country. I think that's uh, often an overlooked aspect of this as well. So those are interesting statistics, Hannah, and I guess as we move into 2023, that's something we will definitely be keeping our eye on just to see how this rolls out across another year. Yeah, absolutely. Like you say, it's, it's hard to draw those, those kind of trends right now. But yeah, 2023, all to play for. So on a similar theme, Hannah, here we're staying in Malaysia, and this is related to, to travel on a domestic level mostly. And this is quite controversial. Tell us a little bit. How is a general election being called impacting travel? <laughs> yeah, so Malaysia's got a general election coming up on November the 19th. Um, and uh, this was announced last week, I think. Was it last week? And uh, the, the actual date 
And immediately, I think citizens were uh, going online to um, book flights back because in Malaysia, you have to return back to your home region to vote. Um, you, you can't vote in the city where you're currently um, staying. And so immediately, you know, airfares were, were pretty high um, domestically. And citizens were, I think, really going to town, um, criticizing airlines um, for this. Now, of course, you know, if I if I want to take the airline side on this, I mean, I, I think that this story really represents a lack of understanding that the media has about how flight booking systems work nowadays, right? So yes, they have dynamic pricing. But the thing is, airlines don't know what date the government is going to announce a general election. They are not, all right? They, they, they don't have that, that, that pre-knowledge. And so of course, if you announce something and go and try and book a flight, you know, five minutes later, 10 minutes later, an hour or so later, the airline still hasn't had a chance yet to react and to kind of to think about those flights. And of course, you know, how a dynamic booking system works is if lots of people are suddenly trying to book those dates while your availability is going to run out and the prices are going to shoot up. So for me, I feel like the media made a bit of a, a mountain out of a molehill. You know, they they, they really emphasize this on oh, the airlines are you know essentially kind of the bottom line is i think that they they're trying to make a buck out of this the malaysian aviation um, commission mavcom stepped in and said we're going to regulate the flight prices and make sure that, that this doesn't happen the transport minister has said they will take action if airlines are found to have, have raised prices um but it's a bit of a story about nothing what do you think gary yeah, it is. And it, I agree with you there that there was, I don't know, the media kind of looked at this as well. This is, you know, airlines profit taking after COVID, blah, 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 blah. But, but I remember this isn't actually a news story. Exactly the same happened when the election happened. What was that back in 20, May 2018? I think it was the last general election. Exactly the same story appeared. Um, exactly the same situation. Because, as you say, um, as soon as the, an election is, is called, people need to get back to, to vote where, wherever they have to be to, to do that. Uh, it's a big country, you know, we have uh, two different geographies, Eastern and West Malaysia. Also, a lot of Malaysians living in Singapore, so they want to get back to vote as well. So, of course, it does put pressure on uh, on flight capacities and availabilities, and that affects prices. You will see over the coming days, more flights will be added, so the prices will start to regulate a little bit more. But it, as you said, just that initial response was that prices just did start flying up, and they did. I mean, they went up quite high. But that would be expected until, as you say, airlines were able to react. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, that made me a little bit exasperated, I think, reading <laughs> reading all that media coverage around it last week, thinking, oh, gosh, guys, if you just took the time to understand uh, <laughs> how, uh, how these kind of systems work. But So let's move across the region to the Philippines. A lot of speculation this week that it was going to remove its mask mandate, which I know for a lot of people around the world, it's a lack of understanding of why we still have mask mandates in our region, but we do. The Philippines has been talking about removing its indoor mask mandate uh, this week. And the I think it was the tourism minister said that one of the reasons to do this would be to put it on a par with Southeast Asian neighbors such as Singapore and Malaysia. So there's a tourism element to this as well as actually just a public health issue. Uh, what did you think about this one? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it is about time, I think. And, and Philippines are also going to be easing some of the systems to enter before you had to have the one health pass, which was a little bit cumbersome to, to fill in. They're kind of stream, streamlining that to the e-arrival card from the 1st of November. They're making it a bit easier for um, unvaccinated travellers to enter. They just need an antigen test instead of 
a uh, RT-PCR test. It is about time. Philippines is struggling, I think, when it comes to international arrivals. Um, They were kind of celebrating a couple of weeks ago that they had hit their target of 1.7 million tourists, um, international tourists already this year. And you kind of think, wow, 1.7 million is setting the bar pretty low. So it is time. And again, what is interesting is that quote that you said, Gary, you know, they want to put Philippines on a par with Singapore and Malaysia. You know, some of these countries who have been lagging behind and who have had slightly stricter restrictions are now realizing that they are getting left behind and that they they need to up their game um, to attract tourists, particularly in this, you know, this this last quarter of the year. Yeah, good point you made there about the setting the bar relatively low. And, and you're right, it is relatively low. And I noticed uh, there was, uh, I think, a comment by one of the ministers in Singapore last week, or perhaps it was this week saying that, you know, their intention and and their modelling is that they will hit the upper reach of their annual target for this year, which is between four and six million. So they're looking towards the upper five million, um, which is, again, relatively low, particularly when you look back at where it was in 2019. So whether they're setting their bars lower this year and whether they're actually achieving those bars, I'm just wondering, I'm curious how they're going to set their targets for next year, um, because obviously they want to, to set the bar much, much higher. But will they be able to do that? Because they don't want to run the risk of actually falling short of a much higher target. What do you think? How will they how will they target set for next year? <laughs> well, in our in our wish list, they wouldn't, right? But we <laughs> we <laughs> we know that's unrealistic. But yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it's going to be a an interesting conversation to be saying, okay, twenty twenty two, we want one point seven million. Twenty twenty three, we're going to have fifteen million, right? Then how how do you do that? How do you put in the the infrastructure? to uh, to support that and we know that the i think the the dot secretary has noted that the philippines uh, tourism promotion budget is lower than that of other southeast asian countries and you know when you, you start to drill down into that as a tourism player you can become a little bit well you can become a lot i think frustrated and saying okay well you want me to generate this much of your gdp but you're not providing me with the training or the support or the infrastructure to be able to do that, how am I going to hit that? Um, so that's a mismatch, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. So sticking with that same thing, that same theme, Hannah, and let's look at Singapore, Singapore Airlines, whose growth slowed down slightly in September 2022. Month on month, passenger numbers were, were not as, as, as strong as, as perhaps was expected after August. Two things there I'm not sure about, Hannah. One, is it simply because it's September and it's after the summer holidays and it's just a bit of a shoulder period? Or is this actually the start of a slowdown? Hard to know, I guess. Yeah, it's hard to know, isn't it? But I think what was really interesting is that the media weren't really covering that it was a slow growth. It was when, when you do the calculations yourself. So September was um, 2.135 million packs for Singapore Airlines Group. So that's Singapore Airlines plus Scoot. August was 2.083 million. So the difference there is 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 really little, 2% growth month on month. What it could hint really is that, you know, airlines now are getting to the point where they have added back a lot of their, their networks. They're looking at adding back those frequencies, but they need China. They need China to be able to reach back and, and push past that certain level of recovery. Yeah, that's a good, that's a very, very good point. I remember when Maya Patel from OAG was on our show a few months ago, and he said, I thought it was an interesting point he made at the beginning, that actually recovering that first 50 or 60% of capacity is, is relatively easy. But it's then, it, then it gets much more difficult, because as you say, 
um, you, you're then requiring passengers to be flying more frequently, probably. I mean, if, if you look at the numbers from 2019, it wasn't just that more people were traveling, it's that more people were traveling more frequently. And that's what we don't have right now. That frequency of travel isn't there. Um, so uh, yeah, I 100% agree with you, Hannah. It's, it's an interesting one to watch. Month on month, of course, as we said many, many times, it's quite difficult to gauge at the moment um, until the end of the year when we have a, a clearer picture of how things are, are panning out. But yeah, that is an interesting element for September, which is sometimes a tricky month in, in this part of the region. But you probably would have expected, given the, the rate of growth in previous months, that it would have been higher than 2%. Yeah, absolutely. So let's stick with flights then and airlines and let's shift over to Vietnam because we, we have a, an interesting new route, don't we, from Vietjet? Yeah, so the low-cost carrier Vietjet uh, plans to open its first direct route between Vietnam and Bangladesh uh, in December. It's saying that this is to boost economic and tourism development. I guess that this is an interesting part of Vietnam reaching out a little bit more to South Asia. And we've seen new routes from India, haven't we, in recent months? Um, this flight will be between Hanoi and Dhaka, uh, which is the capital of Bangladesh. Inter- I mean, it's an interesting move. It's part of this strategy of, of diversifying your, your route network, having replacement markets for China. But, you know, will the demand be there to sustain this flight long term? Yeah, I mean, and one of the interesting things, I, I just uh, went onto the, the e-visa website for Vietnam earlier um, to check if Bangladesh was a country that qualified for e-visa applications, and they're not. Um, so I think that you know Bangladeshi citizens would have to actually go to the Vietnamese embassy to get a, a visa. So that in itself is pretty limiting, um, and I can't see um, a huge, significant travel back the other way. Right? Are, are there going to be a huge demand from uh, Vietnamese travelers to travel to Bangladesh? I find that a bit of a stretch as well. I mean, maybe this is more geared towards. Uh, migrant worker market like we have seen in, in Malaysia plenty of flights between Malaysia and Bangladesh but primarily to accommodate migrant foreign workers perhaps that's there good point I would agree and you know I think also this does seem to be like a sort of test um, situation as well it's going to start with chartered flights with perhaps scheduled flights later if, if there is the demand which you know would, would have to be proven it reminds me slightly of going back sort of about a decade i remember when chinese airlines at the height of the outbound chinese boom they often launched new flight routes um, often to sort of high profile got a lot of coverage but then after after some months several of these routes just faded away because they couldn't make them sustainable economically over time so we'll have to watch this one quite closely but yeah, it, I, you know, it is interesting, I think, that Vietnam is, is just approaching South, South Asia in a different way than it did before. Yeah, absolutely. There, you know, Vietjet is being very aggressive when it comes to opening up new flights to India. And nearly every week, I feel like I'm reading another <laughs> another article about another new route uh, that either Vietjet or, or other Vietnamese airlines are, are setting up between themselves and India. So, yeah, South Asia is clearly a, a big target market for them. And our last story of the week is Cambodia. They have been building an expressway between Phnom Penh and Sihanoukville for what feels like quite a long time. I feel like I've been following this, this, this development, this construction for, for uh, yeah, years. Um, but finally, they reopened. Well, finally, they opened it um, on the 1st of October. And so the advantage between this is, you know, it was previously a five-hour drive um, on their National Road 4, and that's now cut down to two hours. So two hours makes, you know, a weekend trip to Sihanoukville from Phnom Penh much more doable, doesn't it? 
does, yeah, absolutely. We'll promote self-drive travel for residents and, and for visitors as well. Yeah, I mean, this is this is part of the great infrastructure build-out that we're seeing happening across Southeast Asia, roads and railways in particular. The last decade saw more airport development, but it does look as though the next decade will be more focused on roads and railways. Uh, and Cambodia has has plenty of space. You know, there, there's a lot of uh, road infrastructure that mm. can still be built there, and I think is going to be. So yeah, this is um, this is probably the first of many, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and even if you look in terms of um, numbers who are visiting Priyasehanuk, which is the the, the province there, um, it is really increasing. Um, so for example, 15th to 16th of October, the weekend, um, it saw 125,000 tourists visiting, um, more than 60 on, on the 15th of October. And it's really being attributed to the launch of this expressway. And I think not only will it also enable domestic travel to, to you know, take that weekend trip to Sihanoukva, which is going to, you know, stimulate domestic tourism, but also the international markets as well. Um, they may then be tempted, you know, if they're flying into Phnom Penh to combine it with a trip to Sihanoukva, that becomes a lot more doable especially if you're visiting for a short amount of time, rather than thinking, oh, I've got to take a five-hour journey there and a five-hour journey back, that adds up. Two hours is, is pretty manageable. Yep, I would agree with that, Hannah. So that brings us to the end of this week's show. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. And don't forget to send us your thoughts and your comments on anything we discussed today or anything that we missed out. Drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. And as always, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's fullback catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com, and you can find us on any international podcast platform. So that's a wrap for today, but we look forward to talking more travel and tourism in Southeast Asia with you again very soon. Mm-hmm.